Your support of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen has been invaluable. Your support on Patreon has helped us grow the podcast and make valuable improvements. As support grows, I hope to award a photographer to recognize their efforts as a steward of the environment through photography. You can help by contributing as little as $1 a month. Support today by visiting patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. This is Matt Payne and this is f-stop collaborate and listen. This is episode 55 with Robert Park from Nevada Art Printers. I was so excited to get Robert on the podcast to talk about printmaking. I think it's a topic that a lot of you will really appreciate as landscape photographers. Special shout out to Aaron Reed for making the connection to Robert Park for me. I really appreciate that. That's what this podcast is all about, collaborating. I gotta also say I've been really overwhelmed with all the positive feedback that you've all given me through private message and email. Got a really great story this week. Uh, and uh, it just really touches me to hear that the podcast is uh, having a positive influence on the community. Thanks so much. Enjoy the podcast. All right, well, Robert Park uh, from Nevada Art Printers, thank you so much for joining us on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. You know, I've got, I've got a pint of my favorite beer and uh, an awesome guest on my podcast, so I couldn't be better. Sounds good to me. I wish I had a pint. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, uh, next time, we just have to make sure we pour you a beer. I guess I just wasn't prepared. Uh, Well, hopefully you're prepared for the the awesome questions that our listeners have have given me to ask you. So, so, yeah. So maybe uh, we could just start off. Maybe tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I know in speaking with Aaron Reed, he told me that you're also a photographer. So... I'd be curious about how you got into photography and also how you got into this kind of niche um, uh, printing business, because I know that you do a lot of high-end printing. So I'd love to hear kind of that history and background a little bit. Cool, cool. Well, that, that's going to be a very interesting uh, subject. Uh, I have a background in prototype development and engineering, and uh, back in the days, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, <clears throat> if you wanted to do anything in photography, uh, serious, you're, you were shooting medium format or large format. And so I, I got into it then, and I was building cameras, large format cameras, and I was also <clears throat> shooting uh, a lot of things for stock, for uh, calendars and so forth. But being very, very technical, I was I was into the large format cameras with movements and tilts and swings and you know film holders, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. So uh, <clears throat> I, I continued that, and uh, around 2000, uh, I got pretty burnt out living in New York. Uh, you know the way to, the way to get to the top in New York is to just you know go right over people, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stand on their shoulders. So I moved out to uh, Utah in the year 2000, and uh, I started a gallery at Zion National Park. And it was all my work, large format. And uh, there's a guy right across the street, Michael Fatale, another large format photographer. (laughs) And, you know, we had sort of a somewhat of a kinship, but, you know, somewhat mortal enemy thing. But um, anyhow, I was very, very technical, and a lot of artists would seek out the, you know, the good four by five photographers and uh, get a, a what they called a copy slide. We would shoot a uh, a four by five transparency of their artwork with uh, targets and so forth, so they could drum scan them and have clays made. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that for a bit, and then artists started asking me to make prints for them, and at that time. It, you know, the whole G clay, everything, color management, color correction, it was all kind of black arts. Uh, you, you had, there wasn't, there wasn't the proliferation of information that we have now on the internet. So you had to learn it the hard way. And so it was, it was up my alley. So I got into that. I started doing that, started doing a lot of G clay work. Uh, my printing, I started doing all of my printing. It got better. And, Uh, I launched a second gallery in uh, St. George, Utah, which at the time was the fastest growing city in the country. <laughs> and I got approached to, to launch a gallery in 
Las Vegas by uh, a wealthy investor uh, partnering with Art Wolf. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, I took that opportunity in, in 2010. I took that opportunity and I managed the production facility where we made all the products for the galleries. And uh, we had a dark room. We had the uh, chromere and the light jet uh, laminating. I trained all the people there. And you know, we started making these prints on a very, very high level because obviously we were, we were in the Venetian and Peter Lick was in the Venetian. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so there was, you know, there was a high standard we had to meet and being the engineer that I was, I was, I was always very anal, very detailed about what we were going to do and, uh, how to go about it, push the envelope. And that was sort of how I got into it, and it continued. Uh, it, it grew, and we, we we moved into you know coming up with our own products and some unique things that we do. So that was that was basically how I got into it. Awesome, awesome. Well, I know one of the things that you guys are well known for is the uh, the Lumachrome prints. Um, can you explain the history of how that? proprietary technology came to be and kind of explain to people what a Lumachrome print even is? Sure, sure. Well, the the way it came about, uh, as I had mentioned, we had our production location here in Las Vegas, and we had the LightJet and the Chromira. And we were doing everything on Fujiflex, which was the, you know, it was the dominant high-end uh, knee plus ultra printing media at the time. And it face mounted very well, but it had a lot of gamut limitations. Uh, it it had very very poor reds and yellows, and most of that is because the the, the traditional darkroom chemistry has its roots, honestly, in portraits. Most of the prints that Kodak or Fuji would have made throughout the years, the vast majority were probably snapshots and so forth uh-huh. you know, made in the billions, you know, in these quick labs that people would snap with their little instamatic cameras and people pictures had to have nice, pleasing skin tones. And the chemistry would always go off on those, you know, in those labs, they didn't keep mini labs and quickie labs, uh, you know, to, to the standards that they do in some of the high end labs. So that it, it had to have the ability to have easy skin tones. So, you know, they limited the gamut of, of the reds and yellows. So it would almost always give good skin tones. That makes sense. Because I know, like, in Lightroom or Photoshop, if you push, like, saturation on a portrait, like, it just makes people look neon and weird. <laughs> yeah. Pr- pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, yeah. Um, and, you know, and they even have the, the film stocks they had, you know, they had the portrait stocks that, you know, the negative films that they had specifically for doing portraits and, uh, even like the Kodak gold and all the negative, you know, emulsions were all, you know, they were optimized for good skin tones. So anyway, the, the one partner, uh, in the, uh, gallery, he did a lot of flowers, florals, hmm. And he was pretty anal. Uh, uh, I got him into medium format, and he bought a, had a Hasselblad system. And we both had the same Hasselblad system, actually. Uh, so he was really into getting everything he could out of these you know, flowers. And flowers have some, some pretty vibrant colors in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they even have a lot of UV content in them and, and colors that you know, the human eye can't see, but insects can see. Mm. Because a lot of insects can see into the UV light spectrum. And I don't know if you've ever seen flowers where they expose them to UV light and they have like these completely different patterns. Oh, yeah. I think I have seen some of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the Karelian uh, imaging. And uh, anyhow, um, so he was capturing all these very, very vibrant colors uh, on the digital sensor that Fujiflex would just fall flat on its face on and i knew it pretty well because i lived in the southwest and i was shooting canyons and red rock and it was always a huge challenge so we embarked on this he this 
mission to come up with, you know, the next generation. And we were, we sat down, we talked to paper manufacturers, ink manufacturers, uh, some of the people that uh, were the very first people that were involved in the, uh, the G-Place, like inkjet printing, and which was American inkjet. Uh, they came out with the, the dyes that were used in the original iris machines. And uh, th there were some hard limitations, but there were some things that we could do. And we built a, a feature set that uh, was going to was all of the things that would need to be met to get the maximum saturation, the maximum gamut, uh, and the, 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 how should I put it? The reactive look that Fujiflex has under the halogen lights that are dominant in galleries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because the regular prints, like I should say that it, basically all pointed towards inkjet. The, the chemical side of it hasn't gone anywhere in a long time. Uh -huh. There hasn't been a real breakthrough since probably the, you know, the Fuji Crystal Archive uh, die set, which was in the 90s. So we realized that the darkroom prints were pretty much an end-of-life product there wasn't any new technology. The companies that made the light jets had gone out of business. Uh, if you have one, you're, you're subject to getting used parts from ones that have been decommissioned and so forth. So the inkjet was where it was as far as inks. Papers, that was a problem. Most all the inkjet papers at the time were being formulated for instant dry with these micro ceramic coatings, which was basically a white powder. And they, they didn't have that look that the Fujiflex had in the gallery under the lighting. They didn't react to the halogen lights. Well, hmm. they were actually optimized for uh, like under UV light, which would be your fluorescent lights. They had optical brighteners in them that made them look really good in the office. They didn't look very good in the galleries. So we started looking at what, what it was that made the Fujiflex so great. And what was basically, it was a gelatin. It was a transparency uh, on, on top of, of a paper base. And all of the dyes from the Fujiflex and all the, the traditional darkroom prints were held in that transparent layer. And that was, it was an optically, with a clear transparent layer. And that's what gave it most of that look. Huh. We so we started looking into stuff where we could print on solvents into papers that had clear films on them. And that was fairly promising, but, it, you know, they had problems. Uh, Ilford had a technology that looked like it was going to be really promising, but Ilford went out of business. Mm. So we... Um, we started experimenting with uh, some things and we're actually able to find somebody that uh, could replicate that, that Ilford technology and uh, to our spec. And it, it, I can't give all the secrets away, but. Oh, it, sure. It, of course not. <laughs> it, it basically is, it's a two layer paper. It's, it's got a, a, a substrate, and then it has a, 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 a metallized film, and then the, it has a, the, a regular photographic type of wet emulsion on top of that. So the inks hit it. It is a, an incredible depth and dimension. It gives the luminosity of, of the darkroom prints, the Fujiflex, with the enhanced gamut and saturation. Uh, it's, really, it, it's really quite, quite awesome. And there's, there's been some other papers that have come along that are probably 70% of it, maybe 80%, but not quite there. Mm. But we're very happy. Oh, I'm sure. So I guess uh, for a lot of the photographers that are listening that are curious about um, making the leap and making the investment to print on that medium, how would you say that that medium separates itself from other mediums in terms of, of, of impressing um, clients and impressing people when they see it for the first time? 
Like, how does it look different visually? Well, we've when uh, an image is very, very sharp and clean, images on this medium have a three-dimensional look through it, move to the sides, you, almost you can look around things kind of look. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's very, very impressive. Uh, and it's, uh, if you look at say a Fuji flex next to it or a metal print next to it, it's all in the fine details. Now the, the metal prints look, you know, they, they kind of have a lot of bang to them, but they look very flat and they lose a lot of detail in the shadows. Uh, they, they have saturation going for them. And that's that's kind of right. gloss. That's just about it. You know, well, we're gonna really... we're gonna talk more about metal prints later, so I don't want you to go too much into it because I have a couple of questions about that as well. <laughs> uh, well, I guess to sum it up, it's just it's a very sophisticated look. It it has tremendous fidelity into the shadows. It has tremendous micro contrast. Uh, it has a lot of. Uh, gamut volume so you can get what you want out of it and it still will be accurate you know won't start getting wonky awesome that sounds impressive i i i don't know if i've ever seen one in person or not but i've been wanting to um but i have heard a lot um from other photographers that have kind of um either worked with you directly or started the process of working with you directly um, and it sounds like the kind of preparation for getting printed on that medium is kind of, you know, different than most people are, are used to. So I'm curious, like, what's the best way for a photographer to, to prepare their files to get the very best out of the Lumachrome technology? That's a good question. And that, that's something that uh, we spent a lot of time on, on the workshop that we just finished. And the, the bottom line is, is that I firmly believe in developing the, a master file uh, from the very beginning of the process, right from the raw, the very, very best practices in, in the raw development to give your file the best possible chance to, it has at making the best enlargement and the best editing and the the since the since the print process is is so sharp and it has so much potential to make these three-dimensional look to the images uh a, a lot of things that you know might have gone on on uh, other processes where they're a little bit softer like a metal print uh you you, you lose a lot of the potential uh, in what this process can do. Uh, and, and, and actually, you know, most inkjet printing, you know, can, can surpass the metal prints as far as detail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you should, you should be, you should be making your master file right from the raw development in, in the best possible standards. And I've spent an enormous amount of time, uh, testing algorithms, testing, uh, the, uh, upsize algorithms, the actual demosaic algorithms, how how to whether to sharpen in to a certain extent in in raw versus doing it post, or what's the best what's the best uh, methods for making the big enlargement? Because uh, honestly, the 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 Adobe standards you know whatever the defaults are for like their cap sharpening are horrible <laughs> it, 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 agree, agree. <laughs> they're pretty bad the algorithms for sharpening yeah. in lightroom and photoshop are pretty like they just take the i don't know my friend was explaining it to me um they they just look for contrast edges and then they just try to enhance those edges and i think you lose a lot of potential when you do that you you do and the uh, probably the biggest one of the biggest problems is is when camera raw came out 
And the first digital cameras that the three megapixel EOS 30 and the, <laughs> then the 6.3 megapixels, uh, those cameras had pretty severe anti-aliasing filters mm -hmm. on them, which, which they, they, and so they introduced a lot of blur, a fairly large radius blur to prevent moiré. And the camera raw defaults of a one pixel radius for the blur came about when those cameras came out. And now we have cameras that have no anti-aliasing filter and you're trying to get every last morsel out of it. So that, that default radius is so wrong. It needs to be all the way to the left of the smallest hmm. radius because we're dealing with, with a modern camera. You want it to be all the way to the left. And you really need to be dialing down, looking at 100% pixel peeping on a screen with large enough pixels to be able to see what you're doing to get you know, it really finally set. Because we've made 60, cropped 60 by 110, which would probably be an, an 80 by 110 full, you know, full image D810 enlargement. And I mean, and, and very, very, you know, for, the, for an 80 by 110 enlargement from a single capture on a 36 megapixel camera, that's pretty impressive for the level of quality that we got out of it. Absolutely. But the, this particular uh, photographer, uh, he, he knew he was going to be doing this. We discussed the job before he even created the shot, how to go about doing it. And we executed it to the T, and it's on display in, the, in a gallery here in Las Vegas. And it's, it's pretty freaking awesome. I bet. I'm wondering, like, I bet a lot of people <clears throat> reach out to you, you know, with their, their existing JPEGs and TIFFs, and then they send them in for, you know, to get the print created. And, and like, do, do a lot of people have to, like, basically start over from scratch on the raw file? Uh, well, some people, <laughs> I feel like that's what I would have to do. Cause, cause of, I don't know, my, my post-processing process is pretty sloppy, but I'm wondering, <laughs> like if I knew going into it, that it was going to go in through this kind of scrutiny, I probably would do it totally differently. We have had people and, and we actually, uh, to our credit, we, we give free consultations on those things to people. Uh, so they'll, they'll call and uh, they have a project in mind and they'll send an, an image in and we'll take a look at it. And, you know, we can make it work. We, we can do 30 or 40 minutes, uh, you know, sometimes an hour. It's very rare, but and, and, and we can salvage it. Or sometimes we see it and we tell them, you know, you really got to go back <laughs> and you really got to go back and reprocess the raw lay off lay off the radius not so much of that detail slider are you on a 4k display yeah i am ah yeah that, there's a problem they can't see the prop the issue um so oh shit i'm on a 4k that. display <laughs> are, are you on a mac or are you on a pc no i'm on a pc okay that's not so bad the the Macintosh does something with theirs where it's you you may be on 4k but it's it's emulating a lower resolution to you. Oh, it, interesting. Yeah, if you built a 4K image that, you know, was pixel to pixel, you know, should be a full screen on that 4K and you put a little arrow in all four corners and then you hit 100%, you know, full screen, 100% pixels, it should fill the screen and you should see the arrows in the corners. But you don't. You can't. They're way. Huh. They're way out a couple of inches because it's it's emulating uh, resolution. So it's it's. Oh, so it's like it's almost like smearing it together a little it bit. It's screwing it all up, and they're applying some algorithms to to crisp it up, give it a little more local contrast and sharpness, and and it's it's been a nightmare. And when I discovered that, that's when I realized this is where the problem is with the four Ks. Is the Apple is doing this you know, what's best or, or emulated. And even if you go to their more room, which it, it'll say it's looks like 3000 by, by 2000 pixels or whatever. 
but it's a 4K. It should be 4,000 pixels. But you know, right. and it's they're doing some some funny things, which you know they, they they think they know best for the user experience, but it's not necessarily what we really need. <clears throat> right. It's probably it's a great experience for you know visually on the screen, but then when it comes to like people that want to print their photos, it's actually detrimental. Right, right. And a lot of people will say, I, you know, I really don't care because I don't plan on doing this or that. Really? Well, you never know what's going to happen down the road. And this is where I, my master, building a master file that, you know, is, you know, future proof to your, your future thinking, you know, so you don't cripple it in the beginning for whatever technology comes out, you know, down the road. So... I, yeah, I think, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's unfortunate that uh, the current you know uh, technology and monitors has kind of worked against us. So, other than um, like the consultation, like, do you have any other services that you offer photographers um, that want to you know get the best out of out of that that Lumachrome technology? Well, yeah, there are there there's. Well, obviously, as I had mentioned, you know, we will do mat print mastering services. If somebody wants to uh, hand us the file and say, you know, do everything you can to make, <laughs> make it, it work, <laughs> we'll do that. And uh, and you know, the the level above that is is you know, people will uh, uh, come to me and I will do you know consultations with them on you know a little teaching. Uh, or even more is like the, like this this uh, all inclusive workshop that that uh, I do with Mark Metternich, uh, which is you know that's the real super geeky shirt pocket protector you know be <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's that's a but fortunately we record that so you can go back because uh, it's it's too much to to comprehend or to take in your head, which is your brain would melt down if you really tried to take it all in. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so <clears throat> I get uh, kind of switching gears a little bit, like <clears throat> as a, as a photographer yourself, what do you like most printing about um, other people's work regularly? Like um, that's a, that's a yeah. good question. Yeah. You know, I, I would have to say, um, it, it, it's not, it, it's, I, I've been to a lot of these places myself. Sure. So, you know, it's okay. Yeah, I've been there. It's what's really, uh, interesting. And the, the thing that leaves the most memory is to see how other people interpret things and to see how, uh, you know, what their, their, their style is, and then you you know you start doing a lot of work for them, and you see that style is pervasive through their collection, and it's it's cool, um, uh, you know. And, and night sky night shots is probably one of the places where I see all kinds of cool concepts. That gosh, I I didn't think about that, <laughs> and because it's you know it's it's kind of an alien world to the normal world we live in, which is you know light right. during the day. And there's some real creative things we see in night sky shots too. Yeah, I bet. That's actually, um, that's one of my kind of passions is night photography. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, well it's, it is, it's just, it's so cool. It, and, and it, I guess it reminds me a bit of when, when we used to shoot film and you got your film back and you got to lay it out on the table and finally see it. The, the, the night sky shots are, are kind of like that because it's you, you you're you're waiting and you're waiting and you get to discover it because you don't know what it's going to turn out like until you actually you know either you see it on the the display or you know you see it in the in your uh, workstation yeah yeah taking it to the next level though like one of the things that really excites me about um printing is like you know, it's it's awesome to see your photos on a on the back of your LCD screen and then back home on the camera on the computer. But there is nothing like uh, seeing your your photograph printed like like forty by sixty or really big. Like there is just something about that experience that I don't know. It's it just it, it's like a combination of of pride and also like just excitement to see your creation so large. 
Yeah, there there is the excitement of that uh, for sure. And to to me, what I observe, uh, and I can give you an example, is how many if if you've just shot something you know in very high res and you know it's a great image and you're looking at it on your display and you know you ask someone to come over and take a look and they go, oh yeah, well, yeah, that's cool. I like that. That's nice. <laughs> but you you contrast that to that print printed say a 40 by 60 displayed up on the wall and people will come up to that and they can lose themselves in it they'll, they'll get entrained and they can look at that thing for for 15 or 20 minutes i've, I've never seen somebody stare at my monitor for 15 minutes <laughs> right. <in my> <laughs> so there's a certain level of participation that you have when when you have that that print manifested like that yeah and it's entertaining yeah so um one of the questions i had just curious um about printing on the lumachrome medium um <clears throat> obviously the more megapixels the better in terms of you know being able to print larger but how, what what's the kind of minimum megapixel that you've seen work well with with care and handling in the in the digital dark room and through the the sharpening steps that you got you tell people to use. It's an interesting question. Uh, well, I would have to first say that it, it's more than the megapixel. Um, it's what it it comes down to is uh, a combination of megapixels, noise profile. And the level of uh, high frequency detail that's that's native in the the scene that you've captured. <laughs> so it's kind of complex. We uh, people ask me, well, how many megapixels do I need? And uh, well, you know, it depends. If you if you just took a shot of of a crashing wave, how how many megapixels do you need? But if you took a picture of, of a you know huge grassy field in the Palouse and, and you wanted the front to back depth and, and you had you know stuff up close that was really fine detail and well you need a lot you know uh, but there's there's also the noise profile and uh, the the noise is probably as limiting as the, the number of megapixels is in, in how big you can make your image effectively. Uh, and the reason is, is we can use algorithms to upsize an image and get a, a smooth in, interpretation uh, of the uh, upsize. And then we can go back and sharpen to, to restore some of that acuteness that's lost. Mm -hmm. But if it's noise and you try to enlarge it, the noise just basically gets to be bigger blobs of noise right. when you make enlargement. And, and, and it becomes offensive. So being that that's the, the major case, I recommend everybody uh, to shoot if your camera supports it, to, to, to use the pulled ISO if you're going to want to make an ultimate large enlargement. So if it's like the Nikon, like my, I have a D810, uh, I, will, I shoot that at ISO 32. Uh, if it's the, the 5DSR, I highly recommend pulling the ISO on that camera. Uh, don't worry about the last tiny bit of dynamic range this that it's if you're shooting an image that has such a high level of dynamic range that you're concerned about blowing it out bracket and and then go and and you know paint it back in from the other capture or you know do an hdr mm -hmm. but uh, you're you're if you want to make a really great enlargement and you're using a 5dsr or any high megapixel camera and well and really, if you're shooting a high megapixel camera, you're doing this because you want to make an enlargement or you just want to be chasing. You know, <laughs> Theoretically, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so uh, doing that will reduce the, the noise profile of the image. So when you say pull it, like like my, I have a Sony a7R 2 
So the native ISO on that is 100. So are you saying I should shoot at ISO 50? Because it does go down. If it goes down and has the low, I would definitely do that. If your goal is to make, you know, an enlargement. If you're shooting sports, you know, or you're, you're shooting wildlife and birds in flight, well, you really, you know. Right, right, right. Obviously, you have to still respect the exposure triangle. But, I mean, if you're right. talking, yeah, I, I'm, I'm following you. I just, I, it's interesting because I've heard kind of conflicting things about <clears throat> going to the lower ISO on various cameras. Yeah. So um, um, that's interesting to hear. Well, I've tested it and I've challenged people to, to test it. Um, and uh, I do a lot of this work with Mark Metternich and he's, he's hard to convince. <laughs> uh, and he'll go out and he will, you know, I'll, I'll suggest something and he'll go, well, I don't know. And he'll go and he will test it, you know, 10 ways to nothing and and give me the you know the assessment and and he does agree that uh, shooting with at the pulled iso gives uh, a lower noise overall noise profile and allows you to enlarge and do a more focused uh sharpening and not raise artifacts hmm. and you will get a sharper clearer enlargement by doing that and uh, I, there's, uh, we took people over to the gallery that's displaying my work where there's a three-panel stitch from the D810. It's a 60 by 110-inch image. And that was shot with an 85-millimeter prime at pulled ISO. And it's so sharp at 60 by 110. And the level of detail, you go right up to it three inches, and you just, it's amazing. But that's that's because I stuck to, you know, those things that I know are going to yield the ultimate enlargement. Yeah, that's cool. I what do you what what do you say to people that are shooting at higher SOs, especially for those of us like um, night photographers? Like I do a lot of shooting at ISO sixty four hundred and ten thousand, and I know a lot of people are using, you know, image stacking to kind of like use post-processing to get rid of, you know, noise and stuff noise like that. But like, what would you say to people that are maybe doing like single exposure, high ISO shots? Like how would they reduce noise for a large print? Well, that, that's a, that's a really uh, tricky question that's loaded with all kinds of unique things for each individual, um, uh, you know, instance in application. Uh, Primarily, I, I would say if, if your goal is to do those types of things seriously, uh, get the hardware that's the best hardware for doing that. And in that, I, I, I kind of feel that that uh, Pentax 645Z has given the best night sky shots that I've seen if you want to make an enlargement. Mm. Uh, it, it has really, really, really low noise. And it, it it's it, it goes very long exposures without creating noise from the uh, electronics. Uh, I haven't seen the, any of the Hasselblad images from the, the fifty megapixel using the same sensor. You know, very long uh, high ISO I images, but uh, I would assume it's going to be similar. Uh, but don't chase megapixels with you know, trying to do the night sky shots, you know, you want big pixels and uh, obviously don't use the in-camera noise reduction. A dark frame is good. Very good. Uh, I, I, I'm an advocate of the dark frame shots, the dark frame subtraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when it comes to that, you're going to have to multiple process it. You may have to process uh, several layers with noise reduction in certain areas where it's going to be bad and then uh, no noise reduction in areas where you need to retain some sort of, of detail around stars. Uh, it, you know, and color noises can be a problem. That, but, you know, hardware is so important for night sky shots. Yeah, I totally um, agree. <laughs> I used to shoot the Nikon D800, which was pretty good for it um and i'd shoot the a7r2 now which i think is it's pretty good also um i've i've 
I've done fairly large prints with uh, files on on both cameras, and uh, it hasn't made the noise look too terribly bad. But I also don't do a lot of um, stacking, um, which I'd I'd like to try because I think it does help eliminate a lot of the noise. It does. It does. I've seen some images that are done with the uh, the stacking techniques, and they they do. Uh, eliminate a lot of noise. Uh, although uh, I've seen some where it becomes somebody's goal to just absolutely crush every last bit of noise, <laughs> and and that's not good. You know, uh, a properly sharpened, enlarged picture at uh, for, properly sharpened for print, I should say, enlarged picture at a hundred percent actually looks kind of gnarly but uh when you view it at uh say 50 percent uh or, or at a 33 percent to to judge you know how it's going to look in right. print it's a totally different thing all of that gets equalized out there's a certain amount of, of dot gain and bleed you know that that different types of printers create uh, so you know you know, don't worry too much about crushing every last bit of noise because you'll just turn it into something that looks like plastic. Right. But you, you want to have right. some. You want to have some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, shifting gears, I have a, a question from a listener named Kevin Jordan, and um, he wants to know your thoughts about printing on aluminum. He says – between softness of the prints from the dye sublimation process and issues that he's personally had with green color casts in certain light, he's starting to wonder if he wants to keep offering them as print options. Um, what do you think? Well, I think that the – and those are all valid points because those are uh, some of the, the, the main problems that the, um, the dye sublimated metal prints have. Um, and, and, you know, they have other, they have some edge chipping and they have consistency issues, wave issues, but the, you, you have to look at it, uh, in a, in a different manner in, as far as what is your goal for those prints? Do you, are you trying to get something that, are you trying to sell these at a particular price point and the people that you're liable to encounter, are probably more apt to pop for you know the lower price metal print, or are you in a top tier gallery or trying to get into a top tier gallery where you need to have the you know the high end creme de la creme? So um, uh, so I'm not invalidating the metal mm -hmm. print, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it has its place. You just have to understand you know its limitations and and you know put the right product in front of the right person. Uh, but uh, Personally, I, I, I'm a bit soured on the metal prints because of all the problems that I've seen. And we get some really, really picky clients. And, you know, the, the shift, the color shift from, from batch to batch or the, the green shift, which is, is metamerism. Uh, what is a, what's uh, metamerism? <laughs> metamerism is when you try to, to construct a color let's say a, a neutral color like gray uh, or a color that's in the neutrals and you're trying to make gray and most of the dye sub printers are only using four colors. They're CMYK. Mm -hmm. They don't have the newest ones. They don't have light cyan, light magenta. They don't have gray, but anyway, um, so they're trying to build that gray from multiple colors and if you mix the right amount of colors, you, you can get gray. But what winds up happening is, is that uh, under different light sources that have uneven spectral responses, like a fluorescent light, will have discrete spikes you know, at certain colors. Um, usually it's in the greens. And what will happen is, is that the pigments, the the four different pigments that are on that CMYK that are trying to make gray uh, will all react slightly differently 
to the, the stimulus of that spike and it'll cause a shift in color. And it, it that's, and that's largely why uh, the, the high end printers have gone to you know, the, the, the gray scales and introducing light gray and light, light gray to, to reduce color shifts from different, from uneven light sources uh, or uneven spectral response light sources. But the, the dye sub is, is really because they've gone to uh, dyes that are very, very saturated to try and get a lot of pop out of it. They're just much more subject to uh, metameric shifts from uh, uneven spectral light sources. Interesting. So <clears throat> for the, the prints that you guys are doing, the lumochromes, like, <clears throat> are those also um, face mounted with acrylic? And what, is, what do you see as the, the benefit of having an acrylic face? Uh, well, the, the acrylic face, it, it does several things. It, uh, obviously, it, it's, it's, it's smooth and glossy which uh, it, gives, uh, it gives a lot of light gathering capability and has that, that, you know, that glossy, smooth look that everybody really likes. Uh, and it, it does gather light that's coming in from you know, other angles and uh, it will bounce around between the two polished surfaces and it will, it will pick up some of the color, underlying color in the print and create a little bit of extra, imbue it with a, a, a vibrance and a, a little bit of glow. Uh, but it, it seals it, you know, it, it hermetically seals it so you, you don't have the problems with gas fading, uh, in which in today, you know, that's a big problem. We have a lot of pollutants in the environment. So gas fading is a big component of, of of uh, fading in addition to light fading. Those are the, you have light fading and gas fading that affect the permanence of your prints. So acrylic, we use a 95% UV rejecting acrylic. And then there's a UV rejection layer in the, um, in the dry tack uh, lamb that we use, which is the best lamb you can get. And, uh, and then we use a pigment ink and it's all sealed. So it's a really robust print. So what you're trying to say is they're badass and they last forever. They last a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, they last I, longer I, than the people that buy them, I assume. Yeah. I'll be pushing up daisies by the time yeah. somebody comes along and says, hey, my print's faded. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the metal prints, it's, as I said, it's, you got to have the right thing for your. Yeah. What do you, how do you feel about, um, Metal prints that have an acrylic face also. Like, does that add anything to a metal print, do you think? Um, I don't know. Um, I haven't seen anybody doing that, but um, I, I, would be, I, I would have to be very cautious with, with that um, because metal prints, we, we discovered this early on. Uh, we, we put these... Uh, this clear film on the acrylic. It's a glass protection film. Like when you buy any, any electronics product and say it has a, a, a lens, like a, say it was a VCR and it has a clear polished lens where the, the letters are and there's a little piece of film you peel off. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. Acrylic, like right. if you buy an acrylic print, usually they have that kind of on there. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, we put that on our prints and we started, we were, we were doing metal prints uh, and, <laughs> we were putting that on the, the metal print and we had some clients that, that didn't immediately open their print and a month would go by. They would peel the, the liner off and a certain amount of the ink had transferred over into that plastic. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's apparently they call it ghosting. Uh, and it's it's fairly well known, so they have to be careful what you pack it with after you've made it. Because huh. uh, apparently there's a porosity, even though it seems like it's you know, it's it's sealed and impervious, but it's it's porous on a certain scale. I mean that's how the ink got in. Yeah, it, right. You know, so um, and I didn't realize that. Um, and 
So I, I would be, I don't know how that would work out, putting an adhesive on the face, um, if it would leach out any of the dyes or if it would have an, a long-term effect on the, the uh, adhesion. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I hadn't thought about that either. I wonder if the manufacturers that are doing those, I wonder if it's they're not using an adhesive but a, men- a mechanical way of combining the two things. I don't know. Like a stainless steel posts in the corners or something like that. It could just be sandwich. Yeah, right. could just be a sandwich. And I have heard uh, from uh, – clients we have a a a client who's a a pretty famous volcano photographer in hawaii they they discovered they were having a lot of problems with prints that metal prints that they were displaying there and the 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 moisture in the air was causing rapid color shifts oh wow yeah and well it's it comes back to that porosity of the the you know sublimated surface so you know, it must, it, it, it draws it in. And I have a friend in Monterey who, uh, he was told by, um, uh, a very large, uh, print organization there in Santa Cruz, uh, not to do a black and white metal print because if he's in Monterey, it's going to shift. Well, I have, uh, <clears throat> two more questions for you. The first question is, um, what advice would you have for other photographers, especially around people that uh, that might be looking at um, printing printing their work in a large format? Well, my advice is to uh, <clears throat> uh, if if you're starting an image from the beginning, uh, if it's something you've already shot, uh, process it as a smart object. And uh, uh, Mark Minternick has some really good tutorials on on things. There's some great stuff on YouTube uh, for processing. But, you know, the real hardcore getting everything out of it, uh, you know, Mark is the only one I know that's that's got, you know, a good set of techniques that work really good. But if if you do the smart object and you leave it as a smart object and you do your work, uh, when you send it in, if we identify something that we think is limiting, you know, the enlargeability or the ultimate quality, we can double click on that smart object and in the raw space make a tweak to the original settings. Most usually in the it's usually in the noise reduction and the sharpening, um, uh, or sometimes someone's monitor is way mm, too mm-hmm. bright. And, uh, and that's a very common thing is the thing, the two, the two things we see monitors that are, um, you know, that are not properly adjusted in, in luminance for their particular viewing room and too aggressive of the sharpening in the original. Yeah. I've noticed, capture. uh, that problem with my monitor as well. Like I'll process stuff on my, in Photoshop and then I'll put it, I'll put it on Instagram or Flickr or something, and it's like really dark. And I'm like, "What the hell?" And then I'm like, "Oh yeah, my monitor is super bright." Yeah, yeah. Um, um, unfortunately, the companies that make the 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 packages to calibrate monitors don't tell you the real nitty gritty of how to set the proper luminance. They kind of just give a range, and if you're in a in an office environment with rows and rows of, of fluorescence overhead, well, your your luminance is going to be maybe 135, 140. Whereas if you're one of those guys that likes to work in a really dark room, it, it could be 80, or you know, or even lower. Um, so, getting that nailed down is um, uh, is is very important, and keeping it consistent working in the same luminance level every time you come back to your display is pretty So is there, a, is there a specific luminance value that you've found works best for for the process? Uh, no, there, there isn't. and But there is a trick um, that uh, I recommend, and that is to, to, to have a... Uh, a viewing environment next to your display, in other words, like an ot light or whatever, 
uh, as far as a you know a, a, a color calibrated or, or a, a 5000k viewing light or, or halogen light near your display and have a print there and a piece of white paper and you want if you filled your screen in Photoshop with with a document that was 255, 255, 255, you don't want your display to be significantly brighter than paper white in your there in your viewing environment or significantly darker. Because if, if paper white is your reference and, and you're sitting there, you know, no matter what you do, if, if that monitors paper white on the monitor is blowing a piece of photo paper out of the water in brightness. Well, that photo paper is never going to be as bright <laughs> right. as your display. That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that before. It's, I think that's a cool trick. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's something that, you know, it's just a quickie. We can tell people, hey, just do this quickie to see if you're in the area or if you can improve your viewing environment. And we have a little very short little tutorial on our website under FAQ showing some, some, you know, some work environments and, and how to avoid some problems with having things that are going to cause color shifts or improper luminance, you know, settings and how to get, how to get a, 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 a good consistent That's work awesome. environment. Well, so who are some, uh, some people that you think would be cool to have on the podcast? Wow. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of names. Well, you know, we do a lot of work for, uh, well, we have two Aaron's, um, Aaron Reed. Um, we do a lot with him and, uh, he seems to, uh, he has, is a nice portfolio. Um, I, and, and he's a great guy. So he, you know, he's very personal. Um, uh, I, I think he would be interesting. And, um, um, uh, you know, Aaron Feinberg, the other Aaron, he, he's a cool guy too. Uh, you know, I think you could do really well with either of those guys. I'm not going to lie. Actually, Aaron Reed was supplied me with a couple of the question ideas that I had for the podcast. So big shout out to Aaron. Appreciate his help. And actually he helped me kind of reach out to you as well. So thanks Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how can people learn more about um, about what you guys are doing over there at Nevada Art Printers? Uh, well, you can uh, you can you know learn, glean a little from our site, uh, or uh, if you really really want, we have a workshop coming up uh, in July that Mark Metternich and I are putting on. And if you really want to get the full money of everything there is to get, uh, you could do that. Uh, or you could, you know, if you have a quick question and you, you know, you're working on something, give us a call. You know, we're real people. You can actually get a hold of a, of a live human being here. And, uh, you know, I, as long as it's, you're not giving me 10 or 15 images to sit there and go over with you, <laughs> you know, if, if there's an image at hand, you know, I, I will do everything I can to help you along. Cool. Well, thanks, man. That's really great. Um, it's been awesome to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's um, there's, I personally, you know, I've been only doing this since 2011, but I feel like just listening to you talk, I've le already learned so much. So thanks for imparting your knowledge on on me and and our guests. <laughs> yeah, way cool, way cool. I, I I hope to stimulate you know a lot of creative juices. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks again. I appreciate it and. Uh, and uh, hopefully at least you get a couple of people reaching out to you with uh, some, some print inquiries. All right, man. Hey, you have a good one. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thanks to Robert Park for taking time to visit with us today. To find out more about Robert and more of his work, visit robert-park.com or nevadaartprinters.com. You'll find links about all of this and more in the show notes. You can support us by writing a review about the podcast in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, it helps others discover the podcast. Thanks to Brandon Dewey for their five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. For as little as $1, you can help pay for the production costs of the podcast, help us improve the podcast, and for $5 a month and higher, gain access to bonus episodes. 
This week, Robert and I discussed the fine art of sharpening for very large prints. Thanks to Mike Berenson, Sam Bowes, Michael Torkilson, Zachary Bright, Erwin Busk, and Emily Jeppesen for your recent contributions. I love it. If you want to drop me a line about the podcast, either suggestions or ideas, please reach out via my website at www.mattpainphotography.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram as MattPainPhoto, or on Facebook as Matt Payne Photography. Thanks for listening. This is Matt Payne on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen.